Welcome to Browncroft. Thanks for being here with us and braving the rain. We are in our fourth week in a series called Limitless, and we've got the privilege after this to hear from Marvin and Marvin Live to lead worship. If you were here last year, you'll remember they did a fantastic job. So this morning, I want to dig in on limitless grace. And before we talk about limitless grace, this concept of grace, I've got to make a disclaimer for you. It's really hard for me to look at the scriptures and dig into grace because I've got this standard that's built in, that's innate, by which I interpret the scriptures. I interpret the, the world events around me and even my, my, script, my Bible. And that standard is the standard of fairness. And you all have that standard of fairness, your own lens. But I have an acute sense of fairness, even more than most of you here. Let me explain why. I have an identical twin. If we can pull up that picture, here we go. So this is a birthday party. I think I was four or five years old. And believe it or not, my parents could not put us in different clothes. Because if they did, if I had on a different t-shirt, you know, I would say, no, that's not fair. I want the same t-shirt. And so in this picture, this is the oldest uh, controversy in our family. One of us is wearing a Pac-Man shirt, very manly. And the other one, mom, I don't know why, is wearing a Bambi shirt. <laughs> very unfair. So both of us say that we're Pac-Man, and, and none of us will own up to Bambi. And then, having looked at this picture a few years later as a grown person, I think to myself, the most unfair thing about this picture, the most unfair thing is the fact that mom did not zip up our zips before taking the picture. Thank you, mom. I want you to think of your earliest memory of the concept of fairness. What is your earliest memory? Maybe it was that you took the blame for a sibling. Maybe a sibling did something wrong and you took the rap for it. Maybe your next door neighbor got a puppy and you didn't want. Maybe later on in life, your parents made you save it for your car and then just bought your sister a car. Whatever it is, I'm betting that your concept of fairness, it's probably negative. It's something that you did not get, that you thought you deserved, or you took the blame for somebody else. It's, never, it's, it's almost never the fact that you got something that you did not deserve, which is grace. Our view of fairness is almost always negative, and we use it to interpret the world around us. I was listening to a podcast, a finance podcast, as I usually do this week, and it was talking about LeBron James. And if you're a sports buff, you know LeBron James just moved from his hometown Cleveland Cavs to L.A. Lakers on a four-year contract. Does anybody know for how much? Any, any guessers out there? Here's a hand over there. $154 million, with an M. $154 million. Nice one. And this is the title of the podcast. I want you to hear it. This, the title is LeBron James is Still Underpaid. The entire podcast, they ran the math and they said, based on the amount of money this guy brings in, he was underpaid and he is now still underpaid. And I'm guessing some of you are on this side of the fence and you're saying, 
This guy plays with a ball for a living, and he gets paid that much money. And we've got firemen, and we've got policemen, and we've got teachers, and look at how much they get paid. And then some of you are on the other side, and you're saying, let the free market roll, baby. Supply and demand. Let him, let him get paid what he needs to be paid. There is no cap. And it's this dueling concept of fairness that's going on. There's a tension there. And, you know, there are more serious things in our culture, in our country, that we use this lens of fairness to interpret. Let me, let me name a few, the, the headlines in the past couple of years. What about race relations in America and Black Lives Matter? If you've got a view on race relations in America, it's because you have a sense of fairness. And that may butt up, that may hit up against somebody else, and they have a different sense of fairness. What about immigration? You've got a view of what's fair. Somebody else has a view of what's fair. And we could pull up any number of headlines in the past two or three years, and you'll see that if you've gotten into a political or some other discussion with conflict, it's probably because you and that person have a different view of what fairness is. And so this concept matters to us as a country. So this morning, as we dig into the story of David in 2 Samuel, and we look at God's limitless grace, I want you to see that there will be a tension between fairness on one side and grace on one side. And it's going to pull us all morning as we dig into it. Because when we look at the life of David, David pushes God's grace to the limit. There is nobody in the scriptures, probably only Abraham, that's promised as much as David. There is nobody who's given as much as David. There's nobody who's experienced victory in God's name as much as David. Yet David pushes God's grace. He should have run out of God's grace, but he did not. And we'll see that this morning. So the story of David. Many of you know the story of David, but his story starts in the scriptures where God is displeased with King Saul. And so God says to Samuel, the prophet at the time, I want you to go to the town of Bethlehem, and I'm going to lead you to the next king of Israel. I'm going to lead you to anoint that king. God doesn't tell Samuel who that king is. He just says, go. Samuel goes to the town of Bethlehem, and he goes to the house of Jesse. And when a prophet came to town in those days, it's either really, really good or really, really bad. The prophet did not come to town just to have coffee and sit down and chat. Something big was going to happen. So Samuel rolls into town. He comes to the house of Jesse, and he says, Jesse, I want you to bring out your sons for me to see. And Jesse brings out his seven sons, and he starts with his oldest son. And Samuel is waiting patiently, and he's listening to the Lord. And he looks, and he sees the first son, and he goes, this guy is tall. He's handsome. He's a warrior. He's well-built. This has to be the next king of Israel. And God says, no, that's not him. That's not the guy I've chosen. And Samuel goes down the line to the next and the next and the next. And he gets to the last son that's presented. And God says, no, none of these are going to be king. So Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have any more sons? And, and Jesse says, yeah, I have one. He's kind of the runt of the pack, but he's out taking care of the sheep, the animals. You don't, you know, you don't need to worry about him. And Samuel says, no, bring him in. And so he comes in from tending the sheep. And Samuel looks at him and says, this is, God says to Samuel, this is the guy. This is the one I've chosen. Anoint him. And so he has the most humble coronation ceremony in the scriptures. And Samuel anoints him with oil, and that's it. 
And David is chosen in spite of his family name, because to be a king, you had, your father had to be a king. David is chosen in spite of his family name, and he's chosen in spite of his birth order. Every other brother was overlooked, and we get all the way to the end, and here's David. So David's story starts with him being chosen in spite of his family, in spite of his birth order. And many of you know this. David doesn't automatically ascend to the throne. He actually lives like a bandit for the next 14 years. He's on the run because Saul is still king. And Saul doesn't want to give up his throne freely. He either has to be killed or, has to be, or he has to abdicate. And he has no intentions of abdicating. So David lives on the run like a thief or a bandit for about 14 years until finally Saul is killed in battle. And David ascends to the throne, first to his own tribe, and then he becomes the leader of all of Israel. He secures the borders of Israel, and he starts during this period of relative success. And he's living in the palace, and his throne is secure. And he looks at his palace, and he looks at where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the things of God are, and it's basically in a tent. And he says to himself, I, I can't do this. I can't live in this luxury and there is no temple for God. So he says, God, I want to build a temple. So God uses Nathan the prophet to speak to David. And Nathan comes to David, and Nathan basically says, no, I won't let you build a tent. I won't let you build a temple. But here's what I will promise you. Here's what God is saying to you. And we pick up the story, if you want to follow in the scriptures, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, and then 12 and 13. So 2 Samuel 7, 8 and 9, and 12 and 13. So here's Nathan. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God makes these two promises to David. He says, one, I will make your name great. And my guess is, you take a five-year-old, anywhere in this country, and they know who King David is. They know the story of David and Goliath. doesn't even have to be a Christian. You take a, a kid from anywhere, and you say, David, they know David. So David's name has been made great. And the second promise is that David's son will stay, a, a descendant of David will be on the throne forever. And if you follow the story of, of the scriptures, you know that it goes all the way until Jesus comes. And Jesus is king in our hearts. His kingdom has come, and he is on the throne forever. So David gets these two promises, and I, when I read in the scriptures, the only person that has promises this great is Abraham. And so he's got the wealth, he's got the throne, and he's got the very promises of God. And he goes through this period of success, and we get to this interesting story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. And it is, it's 
it's this story in which David succeeds in breaking almost every single commandment in the Ten Commandments. He finds a way to break almost every single one of them. And this is the story in which I see David is at the edge. If anybody should have broken God's reach, his limit of grace, it is David in this story. So let's, let's dig in. What's happening is David's men have gone out to war, and they're laying siege to a city. His commanding officer, Joab, is there laying siege. He's got his fighting men, his best fighting men. They're out there, and David is in his palace, and he's on his roof. And he looks out, and this is what he sees. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 and 3. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. Listen very carefully. She is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So I want you to see what's going on here. David sees a beautiful woman bathing. He's on his palace. He sends a messenger, and he says, find out who that woman is. The servant comes back, and the servant could have simply said this. She is Bathsheba. She lives over there. But the servant says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, let me tell you what I think is going on. I think the servant is saying, David, be very careful. Let me tell you who this is. Let me tell you who Iliam is. Iliam, Bathsheba's father, was one of David's 37 mighty men. And the mighty men are listed in 2 Samuel. It's David's elite fighting force. It's his delta team, his, his seal team. It's... it's Eliam is somebody who frequented the palace. He had an audience with David. And this is Bathsheba's father. On top of that, Bathsheba's grandfather is the chief advisor to David. This guy, his counsel was viewed at a greater level than David's priests. So her father is a mighty man. He's a Navy SEAL in David's army. He's one of only 37 people. And her grandfather is one of the greatest counselors to David and his, and his royal court. On top of that, her husband is Uriah the Hittite, a second-generation Jew, and also one of David's mighty men. And there's only 37 of them. David knew them by name, and Uriah is one of them. So David's servant says, this woman is somebody you should know. And what does David do? David goes ahead and he calls her into the palace and he lays with her and then sends, back, sends her back home. And David thinks, I've done what I've done in secret, and that's it. And a few weeks later, Bathsheba sends a message to David, and the message simply says, I am pregnant. And it's at that point that David realizes, I've been found out. Because this woman is going to show in nine months or six months or whatever the time frame is. And David is at a point where he has a decision to make. He can either confess or conceal. And many of you know the story. He decides to conceal. He comes up with this plan where he calls back Uriah, her husband, from battle. 
and he, he welcomes him, and then he wants Uriah to go home and lay with Bathsheba. So it appears that he is the one that's made her pregnant. Uriah comes home, speaks to David, and that night he has so much integrity, so much honor, so much humility that he cannot go home to his wife while his friends are out fighting and camping out in the field. So he camps at the gate with David's guards, and it's clear that nothing is going to happen that night. David finds out, and he panics, and what does he do? He gets him drunk, hoping that he'll again go lay with his wife. Uriah the Hittite does the same thing. He lays with the guards at David's palace, and he does not go home. Uh-oh. What does David do? He comes up with a plan. He sends, essentially, a death warrant with Uriah back to the army to Joab, the commander. And he tells Joab to put Uriah where the fighting is hot, put him in the middle, Put him at the front so that he'll die in battle. And Joab not only puts him in the middle, but he puts other men around him and then retreats. And Uriah, along with a few others, die in the battle that day. And so now, David is not only a murderer of Uriah, he is a murderer of many of his other brave men. And the period of mourning goes on. Bathsheba mourns. David puts on a good show. And he calls Bathsheba to be his wife, brings her into the palace. And David thinks, I've gotten away. I have concealed my sin. I've gotten away with it. And God brings Nathan the prophet, the same prophet that had given the promise to David from God, and brings him into the palace and there is an exchange, a story, and this is what Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 to 7. He shares this story with him. He says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and, deli and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And Nathan goes on and he recounts all of the promises God had made for David, all of the things that God had done for David. And what does David do? Does David make excuses? Does David explain why he did what he did? No. David says simply this, I have sinned against the Lord. And we read in Psalm 51, David's response in that psalm 
to his sin. And David confesses a heartfelt confession. And he says, God, cleanse me. Clean me up. I have sinned. I have made a mess. And although David lives through the consequence of his sin and his family life and everything else, his, his, his throne is a wreck after God still keeps his promises to David. And I believe this morning, this is the overarching big picture. This is, this is what it boils down to. God's grace was the cause of David's obedience, not the response to David's obedience. God's grace was the cause of David's obedience, not the response to David's obedience. It's not because David was good, not because he obeyed, not because he did everything right, that God lavishes his grace on David. It's actually because of God's grace that David is able to be obedient, to confess, to be in a place where he can come back and be right with God. And in our relationship with God, it is the same. If you feel that when you are a mess, when you have sinned, that you have to get everything right, that you have to clean up your life, that you have to somehow undo your sin so then you can then experience God's limitless grace, then you have it backwards. It is because of God's limitless grace that he gives to us that we can then be obedient, that we can then confess, that we can then come back and have a right relationship with God. And in my relationship with God, in your relationship with God, in David's relationship with God, we do not want fairness. We want mercy. We want God's limitless grace. And we are wired for fairness. We want what we think we deserve. But in our relationship with God, we do not want fairness. We want grace. And if you want fear, there is no room for God's grace. And grace is not a one-time transaction. It's something we come to God day in, day out. If you became a Christian, you experienced life change in Jesus Christ, it's not a one-time transaction to ask for God's grace. It's something that we go and we ask for daily. D.L. Moody has this phenomenal quote about grace and about how we obtain grace and how often we get it. He says this, A man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future then he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain for a week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as we need it. And there's two major applications to this concept of limitless grace. And the first is this. That, God, that grace is not earned, it is accepted. Grace is not earned, it is accepted. And maybe you've been coming to Browncroft for a couple months, maybe even one or two years, and you've just been checking us out. Maybe you've been looking at sermons online, and you're trying to figure out what is the message that we're saying? What is it that God has to offer? What is this life change in Jesus Christ? And let me explain it using a, a quick story. There is 
this interesting police report from 1981 in California. And it goes something like this. There was what appeared to be a routine theft of a car. Somebody has a car, somebody steals it. But where the story gets different is that the cops, the police, they go all out trying to find this car thief. They try and find him, they can't find him. After they can't find him using conventional means, they put out ads in the newspaper looking for this car thief, telling the description of the car that was stolen, pleading to be able to find this car thief. They, after the newspaper articles you know, are exhausted, they go on the radio going after. And then it gets desperate enough where the actual car owner whose car has been stolen, he goes out on an all-out campaign to find this car thief. And when you read what's happened, let me tell you what's going on. This car owner had his car, and he had a rat problem. And on the front seat of, this, of his car was an open box of crackers that he, he had laced with rat poison. And the car was stolen with this open box of crackers that had been laced with poison. And the police and the owner of this car is not concerned about the car. They are concerned about the life of the thief. And this thief is running because he thinks that he's going to be punished when all that they're trying to do is save his life. And I'll tell you this. Many of us run from God thinking that he wants to punish us when in fact what God wants to do is save us. He wants to lavish his grace on us, but we think that we are being punished, and somehow we have to undo our sin. We have to hide it before we come to God, and God is saying, come to me. I will save you. I want to give you my grace not to punish you. Romans 5 verse 20 and 21 says this, but where sin increase, grace increase all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so if your life is a mess, the message is simple. Grace is not earned. It is accepted. The second application is, is for those of you that have experienced life change in Jesus Christ. It's for me. It's for you that have been here for a while. It's for you that maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. You're a believer. You know, you know the gospel. And the application is that grace is not earned. It is offered. It is offered. And God's grace when he gives it to us, we are not meant to be a storehouse. We are not meant to collect it, to keep it, and just hide his grace. We're not a storehouse of his grace. We are meant to be a highway of his grace, where it comes in, and it passes out, and it's offered freely. It should, we should have so much of his, of his grace that it overflows in our life to everybody else. And we should know that we did not earn his grace and others do not have to earn our grace. It should be offered. Grace should overflow in our marriages, in my marriage. Grace should overflow in our relationships with our kids. Grace should overflow in our relationships with our coworkers. 
in our church, in our everyday conversations. How many people here are good at keeping scores? I know I am. In my conversations, I can't tell you the good things you've done, but if you've wronged me, you better believe I have a secret ledger somewhere. <laughs> How many of us are good at keeping pockets of bitterness and forgiveness, unforgiveness? We, have, we know how to section our heart. We've got all this love and care, and then we have these tiny compartments in our heart where bitterness and unforgiveness hides out. And it may come out at a family reunion, at an office party, in a meeting at work, or you know, some other place, maybe even at church. You, know, you might see somebody. But we've got these pockets of bitterness and unforgiveness that we just hide out. And we say, God, have all of my life except this tiny little piece where I am Lord of this piece this ungracious part of my heart. See, I, I believe that Christians, I believe that I should be, you should be, if you're a believer, if you've experienced life change in Jesus Christ, Christians should be the most gracious people on this entire earth. People should be saying, I want to be that person's neighbor. I don't believe, I don't agree with their belief in God. I may not agree with their politics. I may not even like their minivan. But I want to be their neighbors. I want to live beside them. I want their kids to babysit my kids. I want my kids to be on their soccer team. Because those people, even though I don't agree with them, they are the most gracious people on earth. That's what we should be as believers. We should be a highway of God's grace. We are called, as Christians, to a much higher standard of dealing with people. Not fairness, but God's grace. Now, as we close, I just want to share with you where my family has been experienced God's grace in the last couple of years and how, how that is living out. Many of you know I've shared that we've been going through the uh, adoption process. Two and a half years ago, we started out, and my wife and I thought, we've got, to, we've got to share what we have. We have to change, we have to give, and we have to invest in things that matter. So two and a half, three years ago, we started down this adoption process. We started putting some money aside. And here comes the REACH initiative. Here comes my broken car that needs to be replaced. And every time we pulled out of that money, that you know, pool of money that we had, we saw God's grace and he filled it back. Maybe it's a random bonus at work. Maybe it's a promotion. But God lavished his grace. As we pulled out money, God gave us his grace. As we needed help from friends, God gave us those people. And so two months ago, we went to Bulgaria. And this is our son. This will be our son coming next month when we pick him up, Leo. And this is Julie, my wife. And we know that adoption and bringing somebody in our family is going to be hard. We know there's going to be tough times. Some of you have experienced that. But as we receive God's grace, we're going to have to be willing to give it out. And so that is going to be the most tangible way we see that our family is going to be experiencing God's grace. And so I just want to share that with you. You can, you can keep us in your prayers, and you'll see. You'll see Leo. He's going to join our family. He's going to join our Broncraft family. And so, yeah. Thank you. And so I don't know what opportunities God is going to give you for you to be a highway of his grace. But my prayer is that God will open your eyes to use the resources, the time, your family, everything that God has given you to be an overflow of his grace to the world around you, to your neighbors, to your
to your neighbor's kids, to your, your co-workers. Be that overflow of God's grace. And so 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 16 says this, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the opportunities for grace. We pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who thinks their life is a mess and that they have to clean it up so that they can come to you, that they would realize that they come to you and then you work on our lives. And for those of us who have experienced life change, Lord, we pray that we would be a highway of your grace, that the world around us would be so infected by what we have to give them. They would say, what is going on with this people, this family, this church? May we be an extension of your grace. Amen. Thanks, guys.